From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Marine Reservist Captain Brandon Heffinger about an innovative project at Wake Forest School of Law to aid veterans. And after that conversation, we commemorate Jazz Appreciation Month with renowned musician Dan Knight. That's coming up on the public morality. the 21st century, the United States has been marred in the theater of war. In fact, we have neatly conflated any criticism of the war policy with not supporting our armed forces. This convenient non sequitur masks the fact that many returning soldiers are in need of myriad services if they are returned to civilian life successfully. On the campus of Wake Forest University, there is a unique law clinic that began under the leadership of Marine Reservist Captain Brandon Heffinger that seeks to address some of the needs of returning veterans. I am honored to have Captain Heffinger on the public morality. Brandon Heffinger, welcome to the public morality. Hi, Byron. Thanks for having me. Let, let's begin with you uh, providing a, uh, some background on, you, on your military career. So I graduated from college in 2007 uh, from UNC Chapel Hill. and National uh, champion UNC Chapel Hill, as you I'm sorry? I said national champion UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> That's right, Victoria Hill. So I, I, after graduation, I attended officer candidate school uh, with the Marine Corps up in Quantico, Virginia. Um, and I initially entered the, the Marine Corps on an active duty contract. But at the time, uh, this was 2008, early 2008, uh, this was during the latter parts of the of the surge in Iraq and and. Uh, Marine Reserve battalions were being mobilized regularly uh, to support that effort. So uh, we were approached at Officer Candidate School with an opportunity to accept a, a reserve commission so that we could immediately deploy with a mobilizing Marine Corps Reserve battalion. Uh, at the time, uh, the Marine Corps didn't have second lieutenants uh, in the reserves, so junior officer leadership was non-existent. And those jobs were typically filled by captains, but there was a shortage of, of those captains who could fill those roles for these deployments. So I, I volunteered to uh, take that option. I felt like it was where I was needed to serve, and uh, I completed training in 2009 and immediately attached to a mobilizing battalion uh, headed to Iraq. Uh, I deployed in uh, the summer of 2009. Uh, to Ramadi, Iraq, uh, where I was, I was a platoon commander and eventually a detachment commander. Um, in total, I had about 125 Marines under my command. Uh, we were responsible for uh, patrols, security patrols, uh, primarily in vehicles and security escorts. 
um, upon my re- return from Iraq, I um, sought out another deployment and volunteered for deployment to Afghanistan in 2011, where I served as a, again as a platoon commander. Uh, I operated a patrol base in Marja, Afghanistan, which is in Helmand Province, and I uh, returned in 2012. I'd actually been accepted to Wake Forest Law School in 2011 prior to my deployment to Afghanistan, and uh, I was allowed to defer my admission to the following year so that I could deploy. And so the, in the fall of 2012, I sort of officially entered you know, standard reserve duty and like weekend drilling and summer training and began law school. Uh, during law school, I served as an infantry company commander uh, out of uh, East Tennessee and uh, did that for two and a half years. Uh, I'm still active in the reserves. Uh, I'm currently the Marine for Life representative for North Carolina. Uh, so I, I assist uh, transitioning Marines who are leaving active duty and reacclimating to civilian life. Um, I, I primarily assist them in, in finding resources for employment opportunities. And uh, that's the capacity I'm currently serving in. Now, now just um, one last thing on, on, on the law school piece. So you were still um, fulfilling your uh, reserve uh, requirements on the weekends, on, on several weekends, while, um, while you were in law school. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. I, I had a, a company of around 160 Marines uh, under my command in the reserves. Um, it, we met once a month on a long weekend for, for training and then two or three weeks during the summer for training. Uh, however, my responsibilities as a company commander were more extensive um, as I still I was responsible for planning and coordinating uh, training. So it, it felt much more like a a full-time job, um, but I was able to to balance that with my law school requirements. And you did quite well in law school. I mean, my word is not yours, but I have seen your bio. So you've done quite, you did quite well during this time in law school as well. So that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when you, uh, when we talk about the plight of veterans, um, from your perspective, what comes to mind? I think the, the, the greatest challenge we have right now is ensuring that our veterans who uh, sign a blank check for their lives to, to go overseas and uh, protect this country, um, I, I think that they, they return, many of them, with uh, issues reacclimating to civilian life. Now, that may not be something in the form of PTSD or uh, some emotional issue. It, it could just be that the skills that you learned in the military aren't as easily transferable to civilian jobs. Uh, and, and that's, you know, why I'm working in this capacity in my current reserve job. Uh, we're, we're assisting these, in my case, Marines in identifying the strengths and skills that they developed in, in, in the military and uh, best utilizing those skills in the civilian workforce. And so I think that the, the plight of veterans to me um, is that it's it's more than just the few years that you wear the uniform. Um, the, the service in that uniform uh, can have rippling effects throughout your life and in, in a number of ways. And that as, a, as a nation, we need to ensure that 
we're doing all that we can to uh, take care of those folks. Now, uh, as uh, as a nation, um, how about those veterans who were deployed, say, multiple tours of duty um, that had jobs? How have we as a nation done uh, uh, corporations, companies um, uh, make – Keeping those jobs available for them when they come back. How, how, how what's our score on that? On that regard, I think we have a, a law in place, a federal law, uh, USERA, uh, which uh, protects a reservist uh, job if they are mobilized. Um, so, actually, I had a lot of firsthand experience with this as I deployed with two reserve battalions. Uh, most of my Marines were either college students or they were employed. And uh, they had to leave their civilian employment to, you know, for, for a year or more uh, to, de- to deploy. And, and USERA, the law, uh, requires that the employers, uh, under certain conditions, uh, hold that job for the veteran and promote the veteran along in, in that job as if he or she had been there for that year or, that, or during that time that they were away on the deployment. Uh, so I think that that system is in place. However, I, I, I think most companies and corporations uh, abide by the, the rules. It's in their HR policy manuals, and m- most many corporations are supportive of, of uh, their employees serving in the reserves and even mobilizing. Uh, however, there are uh, bad actors sometimes that – it's just that employers uh, are uninformed of the requirements. And we, we should do better on, on that front. But I will say that uh, I had, in my two and a half years as a company commander in the reserves while I was in law school, I had uh, at least seven Marines who dealt with some form of uh, discrimination based on their service from their employer. Some of them were not promoted uh, because they had to leave for weekend training and summer training. Some of them lost their jobs because they were required to attend two-week trainings in the summer. And one Marine uh, was even sort of regarded as a a combat veteran with PTSD and terminated for that reason, which is not only – a violation of USERA is also a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So those experiences had an effect on me when I was in law school, and I decided that, you know, at, at, at the law school, we were in North Carolina, obviously, with Lake Forest, uh, a state with the fourth uh, largest active duty military presence in the country and the eighth largest veterans population in the country. And we have a number of great law schools, and none of them had any sort of veterans program. And I had uh, one of my best friends that I deployed to Afghanistan with was uh, concurrently in law school at Yale, and, and they, had, they have this remarkable veterans clinic. And, and I, I thought, you know, we need to do something for veterans who deal with some of the, these issues here in North Carolina. And Wake Forest is perfectly situated to, to be able to address those needs, uh, both in its, its geographic location and just with the, the quality of students and, and faculty that we have. 
So I uh, took those examples of these, these Marines under my command that had dealt with discrimination uh, based on their service. Uh, I took the information to the law school administration and told them that I would like to consider developing a program, uh, a veterans clinic, to assist some of these uh, veterans. And they loved the idea, but, but they didn't know much about it. And so they sort of uh, asked me to, to produce some research and, and, and more of a plan. So as a student, uh, I spent a significant amount of time researching and writing about about veterans' issues, about the, the, the population in need and the, the legal protections in place and and uh, the key issues that could be addressed by a law school uh, clinic. Let me ask and, you let me ask you this. Um, I'm going to go back to your this is sort of tied to your previous answer when I asked you about the plight of veterans. Talk yep. uh, talk to me specifically about some of the areas you address in relation to some of the plight of veterans you talked about earlier that the clinic I mean, that the clinic addresses. I'm sorry. Okay, you're right. Um, so during this this period of research and development for the clinic is when I first learned about what I think is one of the more pressing issues that veterans are dealing with today. And, and it's uh, it's interesting that you know at that point I had already served in the Marine Corps for five years and. Uh, should have been more aware of, of these issues. But as you may know, veterans receive a discharge when they leave the military. Um, this could be an honorable discharge after a period of, of satisfactory service. Sometimes it can be a less than honorable discharge. It has There are various classifications that, that are considered uh, bad paper discharges. And a bad paper discharge... Um, can have a number of consequences, and most bad paper discharges preclude veterans from VA benefits, uh, both education benefits as well as health care benefits and disability benefits. So I, I, I learned that there, there's a process, an administrative process, to uh, upgrade, a petition for an upgrade of your discharge characterization if you believe it was unwarranted. So uh, the, the real point of this comes down to PTSD and TBI and other uh, mental health issues that stem from combat service. So as a sort of an example, there were 260,000 bad paper discharges issued to Vietnam-era veterans. It's, it's largely estimated that about a third of Vietnam-era veterans dealt with some form of PTSD or mental health issue. Well, PTSD wasn't medically diagnosed until 1980. During all this time, since 1984, if a veteran wanted to petition for a discharge upgrade, PTSD wasn't considered. So even though they had PTSD that may have contributed to the underlying conduct that led to their bad paper discharge, there was no process to consider PTSD as a mitigating factor to recharacterize this discharge. So this means that, you know, um, if a veteran 
who served in combat in Vietnam who returned with PTSD, and that, and that mental health issue led to uh, some form of, of bad conduct that resulted in a bad discharge. Well, instead of that veteran being enrolled in uh, VA mental health care, um, they were given a bad paper discharge, were precluded from VA health care benefits, and many ended up jobless and homeless. And there are obviously other uh, consequences to some of these uh, issues. As you may know, I think it's the number is around 21 or 22 veterans commit suicide every day. Uh, and these kinds of problems can destroy a veteran's life. So the Department of Defense, uh, finally, in 2014, uh, took note of, of this issue. And it's amazing that it took that long. But in 2014, Secretary Hagel issued a memo instructing. Uh, that would be Chuck Hagel, right? That's right. That's right. Um, it, it, the memo instructs BCMRs, which is a, a board of cor for correction of military records. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the the administrative avenues that you could you, you could um, make use of to, to upgrade your discharge. Instructed them to consider PTSD as a mitigating factor, uh, to, to fully and carefully consider it in every petition when the petition is based on PTSD. So that was a, that's a huge, uh, you know, victory on this front, and it, it allows us to make a case for some of these veterans to recharacterize their discharge sometime after they were discharged. So, you know, we're finally, as, we're finally addressing these issues uh, as a nation, and this Veterans Clinic, when we're informing it, we uh, made this discharge upgrade uh, issue our mission. Given that um, we may have some listeners who are who are veterans, and we may have some people who are interested in supporting the program, how can they find out more uh, uh, about, about the clinic? So the clinic does have a website. It is veteransclinic.law.wfu.edu. Or you can just Google Veterans Legal Clinic, uh, Wake Forest School of Law. Uh, there is information on the website about the areas, the legal issues that we uh, address with the clinic. Um, there's an application that can be found online for veterans who believe they could uh, use our assistance. They can apply, and uh, students and faculty will review applications, and we will periodically uh vet these applications for the cases that we are able to, to, to accept. And so it's not just PS, uh, uh, PSTD, it's also employment, it's also housing, right? Those are all some of the areas that you also cover? So we are trying to uh, focus primarily on discharge upgrades. Mm -hmm. We are engaged in some impact litigation, so uh, as it relates to other veterans' issues. And by impact litigation, I mean uh, litigation that has – uh, that is going to have a rippling effect across the system. Currently, we're working on an appeal uh, as co-counsel uh, on a case that, if successful, we could get additional uh, GI Bill benefits for a, a large number of veterans. So we are considering um, other substantive areas of the law besides discharge upgrades but it would be sort of an impact litigation um, setting. Mm -hmm. 
Brandon Heffinger, uh, I want to first of all thank you uh, for your service to our country and uh, for this yeoman effort uh, to uh, address the plight of veterans. And thank you, sir, for being on the public morality today. Thank you. That was Brandon Heffinger. Stay tuned as I re- speak with renowned jazz musician Dan Knight as we celebrate Jazz Appreciation Month here on the public morality. <laughs> Welcome back. April is Jazz Appreciation Month. And I cannot think of anyone I would rather have on the public morality to talk about this uniquely American art form than renowned jazz pianist and my good friend, Dan Knight. Dan Knight, welcome back to the public morality. Hey, hey Brother Byron, it's good to be here. Good to have you. The last time I think um, you were on, we talked specifically about Duke Ellington. Yes. And, and given that April is uh, Jazz Appreciation Month, I thought we would have you back to talk about jazz. Um, oh, break my heart. Uh, how do you define jazz? Hmm. How do I respond to jazz? No, how do you define I'm sorry, how do you define jazz? How do I define it? Yes. How do I define jazz? Oh. Um, there are two or three different ways. Um, I would say improvisation, as Winton Marcellus would call it, improvisation with style and in the groove. Uh, Ray Brown used to say everybody had to do three things. You had to play time, you had to play rhythm, you had to play the changes. So so if it swings and it's improvised and... uh, um, I think I think that's the thing for me. You know, it, it, it's it's all in, in 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 the style and how it happens can be individual for for each person. So uh, so jazz for me is is, is swinging and uh, um, in the context of a standard or or free jazz even and, and improvised. So. Uh, so it's difficult to define. I mean, it, it, it's it's a, that's a that's an interesting question. We can talk about that for half an hour. Right. Well, well, but but isn't that part isn't that part of the the what makes jazz unique? Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, you could um, you could you could who could who could say say for instance you want to talk about vocalists? I mean, you couldn't be di- more different. Than, than say the difference between Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald, um, or Diane Reeves for that matter, mm-hmm. and and uh, um, but you can't say that that none of those three people are are jazz singers. I mean, who but who could who could be more different than Sarah and Ella? But each of them is unique in their own style, and they're and they're both obviously jazz people. You, you know, one of the things that's always struck me, and uh, I want hear how you respond to it, that. When we talk about jazz as being an art form, mm-hmm. it seems there's a, there's an aspect of it that that term doesn't do it justice. It's more than that. How, how do you see that? Exactly. Well, it, it's like Monk said. Monk said that 
he said he was talking about writing about jazz. He said writing about jazz is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it's 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 undefinable. It, it is jazz is is beyond category as. Uh, uh, as are so many of the people, I mean, like all of the greats, all, all of the great people who have played it, Coltrane is beyond category. You know, uh, Louis Armstrong was beyond category. Duke Ellington certainly was beyond cal- category. Billy Eckstein was beyond category. You know, Sarah Vaughan, L. Fitzgerald, all of, all of those folks are, are, are really uh, uncategorizable and, and kind of undefinable at the same time because what they are is so much greater than any kind of description you could give to them. So I, I think jazz as an art form is that way too. It, it really is. Now, now from your perspective as, uh, as a jazz musician, um, what happens when you're playing with other music- musicians on stage uh, what occurs in that moment sometimes that the audience may not be aware of? Is there something? Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's a really kind of interesting phenomenon, and, it, and it's so different than, than, say, the classical music approach. Um, the, the approach of a classical musician when, when they're getting ready to do a performance is, is, uh, is performance of scales and arpeggios, getting your hand together, get your technique together to, to do a specific Piece in a given way at a given time, and uh, and and, uh, and the jazz preparation is totally different than that. I mean, we have to get our chops together, we have to get our technique together, we have to get our understanding of a piece together. We have to know the form and the structure of a piece so that so that when we get together in a particular time, in a particular space, what we have going on is a conversation. So. Uh, um, so if I'm working on, say, a solo piece, then then I'm having a conversation with or through the piece of music, and and uh, uh, and what I do with it is going to be different every time I play it because I'm going to ask the song what it is, and then I'm going to wait for the answer, and uh, and I will hear the answer at the same time the audience does. And, if I'm working with a duo or a trio or a quintet or a big band or whatever it is, all the rest of us are all in the same space going, like, what new is going to happen? So so we're having a conversation with each other in real time and space um, in front of an audience or, or not. But uh, but that's that's where the communication happens. And, and we, we wait for and if we expect something um, from music with a capital M. To come and speak to us or and through us, so uh, so that's a, that's that's the real difference in the music. It's uh, it's not something that's written down and and uh, um, and planned so that we know exactly what somebody's going to say at what time or and uh, um, you know it's it's the, the improvisation that's spontaneous uh, the spontaneous the spontaneity of the whole process is is what makes it unique. So when you're in that space. Is it fair to say that while you know the audience is there, I I don't want to say the audience is irrelevant, but you're you 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 all in a different space in that in that moment. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And 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 you know, I think for me anyway, I I depend on on the energy of the audience to 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 be included in the whole process, so that. 
so that uh, what the audience brings to the whole process is is just as important as what I do. So uh, um, so that uh, so that that's a critical part of the whole thing. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with renowned musician and friend Dan Knight as April is Jazz Appreciation Month. I could think of no better person to, to, to bring to the public morality. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you several uh, about several greats. And uh, so this is like jazz. We're going to do this sort of like being on stage right now. And <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to throw out some names, and you just sort of uh, – you, you, this is this is the Dan Knight solo to talk about these individuals. All right. Oh, beautiful. Okay, Charlie Parker. Undefinable. Totally, absolutely, completely undefinable. Um, he was a man who was, who was, who was totally in a class of his own, in uh, basically pretty much in his own, in his own planet. Charlie Parker uh, redefined the music. Peter Fine, the music of jazz. Uh, he helped elucidate and champion what folks began to call bebop, and uh, uh, it was a total art form that was that was complete and and unique unto itself until he came along, and then and then his voice, his voice, his style, his way of putting music together, um, his way of organizing organizing sound in in a, in a completely cogent, coherent, but, uh, but faster, more linear um, uh, fashion just changed the music completely. And uh, uh, he and, and uh, Dizzy Gillespie and, and some of the other guys who came along after him, um, Max Roach used to say that nobody ever gave more and got back less than Charlie Parker. And I, I really believe that. I really believe that. Next person, uh, John Coltrane. <laughs> See, then, then, now there you go. You know, it, it, this is you know totally, totally undefinable at the same time. Coltrane, Coltrane is is one of those voices, and I'm going to say this: he's one of those voices to me, like Mahalia Jackson. It's like if you heard Coltrane sing through his saxophone the same way you heard Mahalia Jackson sing, then you understood by hearing both of them that there is a God because Coltrane was listening to that and that's what came out his horn. And, uh, uh, and if you listen to Mahalia Jackson the same way, you have no doubt. <laughs> you have no doubt that God is singing through her. And she's singing to him, and uh, and and what what Coltrane did was nothing short of prayer. So uh, so he's a he's a divine being. He's a he's a unique spirit, and um, some folks would say a messenger of God, and, and I would agree with that. Well, there, there's a group. There were a group of people in San Francisco that had the church of John Coltrane. So I think you're onto something. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, next one, Miles Davis. Uh, Miles is Miles is such a contradiction, and I and I think he and I think he wanted it that way. Mm -hmm. I think I think I think he wanted it that way. He was um, 
give it another time and another place, he would have been uh, he would have been uh, uh, a trumpet player of the New York Philharmonic, and he would have been included in that category, and would have been one of the greatest orchestral trumpet players who ever lived. But that world was not available to him, and uh, uh, for for so many reasons that happened to so many great musicians, uh, he he got pushed into the jazz world because there was not much else left for him, and. Uh, uh, so he went into that world and, and became the best at, at what he did, and uh, uh, he was he was subjected to the kind of things that should happen to no man. Uh, standing out in front of a club where he was playing and having a police officer say, um, "You know, get along, move down to the, get off the street. You know, you can't stand here," and uh, um, you know, getting assaulted and arrested for just merely just being. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it should never happen to a soul. It should never happen to anyone. But uh, um, it happened to him. It happened to him so many times that you can't count it uh, in so many different ways. So uh, so if, if Miles was bitter, if Miles was, Miles was angry, Miles was hurt, uh, he had every reason to be. But, uh, um, but yet again, his music is transcended. It, it, it just is. It, it's, it's, he's another one of those guys you can't imagine in the world without Miles Davis because he changed it so much. And, uh, and he was one of the ones who came up under the influence of Charlie Parker and, and Dizzy and found his own way to have his own voice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's, he's just, he's irreplaceable. He's, he's totally and uniquely Miles. There's no other place for him. Oscar Peterson. Oh, now Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar is, yeah. So those of you who don't, I, I have a, my little boy, my little boy, quote, unquote, is my little Bichon Fisse, uh, and uh, we named him Oscar Peterson, so he's Oscar Peterson Knight. And, uh, <laughs> of course, his little sister is Ella Fitzgerald Knight. Cause and they're adorable. I can attest that they're both adorable. <laughs> but, yeah, so, so Oscar... Oscar is like, he feels like my great uncle. And, uh, uh, and I mean that in, in a religious reverential sense, just because uh, uh, I'm a, I was one of Dr. Billy Taylor's protégés, and Oscar and Billy Taylor were, were pretty much the only two protégés of the great Art Tatum. So, so to be part of that lineage of, of jazz, it, you know, it, feels like, it, it feels like Oscar is part of my heart. And uh, um, when he quit, I think he quit high school. He quit high school to go on the road with Norman Grant. And uh, his father wasn't going to let him go. And so his dad said, look, he said, uh, you're not just going to be another player. If you're going to quit and you're going to do this, you have to make yourself the best there has ever been. And, uh, And I think... And I think you can make an argument. <laughs> I think I think you can make a really solid argument that, that there were two great, 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 great jazz pianists. One of them was Art Tatum, and the other, who was even close to a equal, the only one, was was Oscar Peterson. But uh, the thing that's amazing to me is as prodigious as his technique was, and nobody had more technique than Oscar. Nobody had more heart than Oscar either. You know, he can he can break your heart as easily as he can tazzle it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
to me there's like no greater compliment there's, if I have if I have love for anybody in this whole world I have love for him um, it just I just adore the man <laughs> so so uh, yeah so for Oscar Oscar said a bar that all of us are still trying to climb up to you know and uh, he's uh, he's an extraordinary human being uh, we're going to stay with pianist for a moment um, Thelonious Monk Oh, Monk. See, now, <laughs> how, can you, how can you imagine, see, Monk, Monk is a jazz pianist, and Oscar Peterson is a jazz pianist, but Monk is, Monk is Monk. Monk is, you know, and you and I have had this conversation privately, maybe it would be a good time to talk about that. Yeah. You know, it's like, Monk was like Jackson Pollock to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Monk came along and, and said, there's another way to do this. There's, there's another way to make these sounds on the piano. This is what I hear. This is how it comes out my body. This is how my hands make this happen. And, uh, and I, heard, I heard some folks who were there, um, Billy Taylor among, among several, and uh, they said the first time that uh, they, took, they took Duke Ellington to, to hear Monk play, Duke looked at folks and he said, he's doing all our stuff. He's he's doing all of our stuff, which meant like flat ninths, flat fifths, augmented elevenths, you know, thirteenth chords, um, tonal clusters, all the kind of things that the Duke Ellington band was doing as a band. Monk was doing in his piano, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, totally unique, totally, totally himself, you know. But uh, but again, you know. Undefinable, uncategorizable, incomparable. You can't compare him to anybody else. He's he's mugged. He's he's his way of thinking and his way of organizing the world and the piano is just um is, is unique to him and unparalleled. Now um, we're going to switch gears ever so slightly. I'm going to ask you again. You, you you can give a jazz response and just riff on this, but who are some of the names whose unique contributions to jazz? may not be as well-known publicly. Who, who are some of those names, past or present, you know, however you want to? Oh, see, the, the, first, the, first one, the first one to come to mind is Milt Hinton. Milt Hinton was a bass player who played with everyone, and he was everybody's favorite bass player because, uh, because he knew how to make other people sound good. He knew how to play the right notes in the right place, where to lay the root, how, where to lay out, where to come up for support, how strong to play, how how quietly to play. But uh, he just he just laid the underpinnings of everything. It was so confidently done that, uh, um, and he was so unassuming about it that uh, that uh, he just did it. And, and did it in a way that he didn't bring a lot of accolades to himself or a lot of a lot of attention. He was never really a, a fiery soloist, but if you wanted somebody to, I mean, and you can look down down the list, just the list of uh, of uh, recordings that Milt Hinton did just on a Bruno label. Um, he played with everybody. He played with everybody, and he was always there in the background. And uh, um, he didn't make a show of it, but but he was he was the best at making other people sound good. A musician's musician. Yes, exactly. And you know, and and uh, and another one who who's playing, I think, is really deserving of a lot more attention, 
uh, was a tenor player named Winston Kelly, who was just phenomenal at comping. He knew just exactly the right notes to put in the right place to uh, to help a tenor saxophone soloist along and you know, to to contribute a little bit in his own way to keep the structure of the song going, but uh, not to inhibit the flow of uh, improvisation. And it's a it's a really kind of unique gift. Um, it's something that you know I love Dr. Taylor's playing, but it was something that he was not particularly good at. Uh, his if you listen to him. Uh, Especially if you listen to him comping on some of the tunes with uh, with Johnny Hodges and Coltrane in that famous like ballad thing that the the, the or actually you know was uh, um, well who was the who was the singer I can't think of his name now um, who did the the the, the very thought of you Johnny Hartman yeah right. Johnny Hartman yeah I said Johnny Hodges yeah so so if you're thinking it, it Dolly Taylor's on a couple of those tunes. And uh, and you can almost hear him in the back because he likes to comp with a line, and sometimes that can be really distracted. But uh, um, Winston Kelly would just like lay a chord in the right place, just two or three notes, and and that's all it took to to bridge the whatever little gap might be in the song, just to kind of hold the thing up. And uh, McCoy Tyner was good at that too in his own way. So so I would say, you know, there are a bunch of people who are like that. You know, and, and really in his own right, uh, Coltrane was was is a talent deserving wider recognition. And Cannonball Adderley, um and Matt Adderley, his brother, um, you can you can take all the guys from the jazz lexicon, even the the best of the best of the best. Louis Armstrong, foremost probably. Um you can't imagine what the world was like without him because he changed it so much. And uh, and he really changed it by himself. All he had to do is, like, if you listen to the to the cadenza at the beginning of West End Blues, it's just him. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when he got... When he got, when he finally got to the point where he's doing, it's you know, it's all New Orleans, but the whole world has changed, man. It's like he changed the whole thing right there before, um, before he even got to started playing the tune. Um, and 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 if you want to say like, there's one recording that changed the musical world forever. It's West End Blues, and it's Louis Armstrong solo. So without that, there was never, there would never be a Charlie Parker or a John Coltrane or a Miles Davis or anybody else who came along after him. Mm-hmm. So he's the originator of it, and, uh, and and I still don't think he gets the kind of recognition that he deserves. All right, now we're going to have a little fun, as if we weren't having fun already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's what, here's what we're going to do. Um, each of us is going to build a band, and um, we're going to have uh, – we're just going to have – unless you want to add some pieces, we're just going to have a quartet. We're going to have a bass, a drum, piano, and a saxophone, and maybe we'll add some vocals at the end. You ready? Okay, cool. All right, so let's start with your your bass player. Who's your bass player? Oh, so I would say Milt Hinton. Milt Hinton's bass player. All right. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Charles Mingus on that. I'm gonna go with Mingus since you took Bill Hinton. I'm gonna go with Mingus. 
Oh, cool. We could also could have. I could have went with Paul Chambers, but I'm gonna go with Mingus on that. All right. Who is your drummer? Oh, drummer. If it's Mingus, then the drummer would have to be. No, you know, you you've got Hinton. I've got Mingus. So you 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 know. I'm building. Okay. A, I'm building a band with you, so we're, I'm building a band. You're building a band. So right. if you so, got Hinton, all right. So I would say, I would say Max Max Roach. Max Roach, huh? You, so you'll have to help me out here. You know, I was thinking about going with Mingus. Uh, would Elvin Jones work? Yeah. Okay, well, that's my drummer. I'm going with Elvin Jones. All right, who's your pianist? Um, my pianist would be, um, Phil Hines. All right. Now, I'm going to go with, uh, because I think Monk would be too much for these guys. I'm, I'm going to go with Bill Evans. Oh, no, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm going to go. That would. You thinking about that? Are you, you am I, am I on? I mean, you're the expert here. Tell me if I'm off if I'm off kilter here with my guys. Oh no, that'll work. That'll work. That'd right. be cool. That'd All be right. cool. That'd be interesting to hear. Saxophone. Who you got? Saxophone. So I would say if I'm if I have Roe Hines playing, um, I would have to have Lester Young. Ooh. And this is one of those names that I'm gonna. This is a name that doesn't get a lot of play beyond the jazz world. But you, I'm going to go with Ornette Coleman. Oh. I'm going to take Ornette Coleman yeah, for my... Well, dude, we just we just took an assigned shift in a, in a really interesting way. That would be quite good. Yeah. All right. Um, you, 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 you get a male vocalist and a female vocalist. You go, you take, you, 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 you go, you take them both. You take, you know. Who's your male? Oh, male vocalist. Uh-huh. Oh well, I would say I would I would take care of that in one shot. Male vocalist would be Billy Epstein, and the female vocalist would be Sarah Hart. All right, and then I will take Jenny Harvey and Billy Holiday. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because because if Earl Hines is playing the piano, then that was one of the first big jobs that Sarah Vaughn got playing with Earl Hines' right. big band, and, and she got that because Billy Epstein heard her as the uh, at the Apollo, and uh, was absolutely totally flipped out. And, and, so, uh, and see, I'm taking Billie Holiday because of her lack of range that she's not going to do too much beyond, in a very genius way, I might add, beyond the guys I got playing behind her. She's, she's going to yes. fit right in with those guys. Yes. Well, see, and I think Sarah Vaughn because Sarah – Sarah is so much of a musician that she would let herself be influenced by those folks who were around her. So, uh, so listening to her sing with Lester Young would just be a treat. Right. That's the thing. And you, and you know what else I would have to add? I would, I would be amiss if I picked Max Roach. I would have to, I would have to add a trumpet player to this whole little mix. All right. So, so I would have to add uh, Louis Armstrong. Ha 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 ha. Max, Max Roach was my combo coach at University of Massachusetts in 1988, and uh, he was he was working with our kind of folks from all over everywhere. There were a few folks from all over the world who were out studying at University of Massachusetts in this in this summer program, and uh, 
my combo went been okay. So, so we got about like a half a week into it, three quarters of a week into the whole deal, and 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 he was feeling good about us, and we were sure feeling good about him. So we sat around and and we just had him tell us stories. So uh, uh, one of my my big questions for him was was uh, was asking him if there was anything that he had wanted to do in the musical world that he never had the opportunity to. And the thing that he said, he, 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 he came over to right away. He said there was one guy that he envied more than anybody else, and it was Barrett Deems, who was the drummer for years and years for Louis Armstrong, because he said, uh, I never got to play a note with Louis Armstrong, and Barrett Deems got the gig and was you know, playing and playing and playing with him until he passed away. So, uh, so if, there was, uh, if there were drums and, and music in heaven, uh, Max said that that's what he wanted to do. So I said, okay. And so I'm thinking now in a, in a, in a dream world, if I'm putting this together, if I have Max playing drums, I have to have, uh, have to have Louis Armstrong playing trumpet, cornet. That's good. That's good. Um, question. Do you worry about the future jazz? I used to. Um, I guess I don't worry so much about it anymore. Um, the music is different now than it used to be. Uh, back when, back in the 50s, the mid-50s, when I was just a little kid and I was listening to it for the first time, uh, I was listening to, uh, uh, to Nat King Cole and watching his TV show. And, uh, you know, and he had, he had, the greatest musicians in the world on there. I had Ella Fitzgerald. I heard Oscar Peterson for the first time. Uh, Herbie Ellis, Ray Brown, uh, Ed Thigpen, uh, the Mills Brothers, um, all of these folks the, the, who came on who were just the best of the best. And and uh, but the only way you could learn the music back then because there were no books, you couldn't go get a textbook to to uh, uh, to read jazz patterns. And you had to. To listen to Charlie Parker on a recording, if you could find one, and then and then try to figure out what he was doing, and and the thing that happened when you learn the music that way is it is it became part of you. It, it became it literally altered your DNA. It it became part of who you are, and then and then part of your responsibility was to was to do homage, pay homage to to the tradition, and then try to expand it. And uh, uh, the way a lot of folks learn jazz now, you go to a school somewhere and somebody will hand you a book and there's a, there's a transcribed book, a Charlie Parker Omni book, so you can uh, read somebody's transcription of every, every solo that Charlie Parker ever did and, and get some things by David Baker that will show you harmonic patterns of jazz and things that you can go actually to. But, uh, but it's kind of like learning the music from the outside in instead of from the inside out. And... Uh, uh, the inside out was the only way to do it when I was young. But I think the music is strong enough that what will happen and what I've seen happen now is that is that even when people come at it from the outside in, if you stay with it, eventually you will hit a point where the music will speak to you. And when it does, then that spirit, the capital that music with a capital M begins to talk to you, then then something unique will happen. 
And as long as, and I know we've talked about this before, but I said as long as there's a Duke Ellington, as long as there's somebody listening to him, as long as there is somebody listening to Swinging the Blues or, or singing the way Duke Ellington sang, then, uh, then, then there's hope for the rest of it. So as long as there's that, then, uh, then there's enough to, uh, there's enough to feed the next generation. Dan Knight, thank you, sir, for being on the public rally today. You've honored us very much. Oh, well, you honor, you honor me by including, <laughs> including me in the pantheon of all the great people who've been on your program. So thank you for doing this. You're, you're, uh, uh, you're a beacon in a dark, dark night. That was Dan Knight. In lieu of our traditional clothes, given that not only is this Jazz Appreciation Month, but this broadcast is airing on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Ella Fitzgerald, it seemed only appropriate that she provide the closing remarks in the form of Don't Be That Way. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you to loyal fans. Welcome to our part of the show. We hope you like the songs we've chosen. Some old, some new. Some we know, some we don't. <laughs> this is one of those from the good old Chick Webb, Benny Goodman days. Don't cry. Oh, honey, Never. 